Welcome, guys, to the Grove Church. My name is Caleb Brazier, and I am one of the pastors here at the Grove. Uh, so glad that you guys have joined us here this afternoon. We are continuing our sermon series, a nine-week sermon series, that we are calling Missional Profiles. Uh, and, and for this year as a whole, we're, we're kind of sitting in the Great Commission, this, the commission that Jesus told his disciples at the end of Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. We understand this is the mission that Jesus has given to every one of his followers. And so we kind of condensed that into just three words, go, make, and teach. This is the summary of what Jesus has told us to do. So in these nine weeks, looking at these missional profiles, we're looking at nine different individuals who have done one of those three things, obeyed the command to either go, to make, or to teach. So week one, we looked at Paul and Timothy as they then obeyed this command to teach, Paul and his relationship to Timothy. Second, we looked at the woman in the well in week two. She had this encounter with Jesus and then obeyed him to go and then make more disciples in her town. She then brought them all to meet them themselves. And last week, we looked at Isaiah and the call of Isaiah. As he then saw Jesus high and lifted up on his throne, he then obeyed the call to go. And so this week, we continue and we will look again at someone who obeyed this call of the Great Commission to make disciples, uh, particularly talking about evangelism. And, and now, again, as we look at this, maybe you're here, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're like, seriously, I, I came to church on the Sunday, we're talking about evangelism, seriously? Well, just to be honest with you, maybe you're like, well, it feels like all Christians try to do is just try to convert me. I finally come, I've listened to my friend who has annoyed me uh, enough, in which now I'm here, and we're going to talk about evangelism. Everybody just wants to convert me. I just want to be honest that is what we're trying to do. Uh, I'm just going to put all the cards out on the table, okay? But I want you to hear me out a little bit, okay? Put yourselves in our shoes. That we really do believe that this is God who's revealed himself to us through this book. That there's eternity at stake. That we deserve then separation from God because of our choices, our active rebellion against him. We deserve hell. And the only way to be saved from that is by believing, trusting, and following this man named Jesus, who then died in our place to take our punishment for us, offering us his life so that we can then spend eternity with him. And the only way that we are saved is not through our own actions, but by believing in him. That's what we believe. So it would actually be incredibly unloving for us to try to not convert you. So just maybe hear us out a little bit. That is, again, put it on the table. That's what we're hoping to do. But in particular today, as we look at evangelism, right, we don't want to be necessarily ashamed of that and kind of owning, well, this is exactly what we're trying to do because we believe genuinely that eternities are on the line. And so today I want us to look at this story in Acts chapter 16, just in verses 11 through 14, looking at this relationship with Paul and this woman named Lydia. Because if our commission is to go and make disciples, before we can make disciples, it's important that we understand how disciples are made. Before we can go and obey Jesus' command to make disciples, we have to know how disciples are made. And in Acts 16, God kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit to show us what's happening behind the scenes in evangelism, in conversion. And it's important for us to get all those pieces in place. Otherwise, we might be trying to do things that we aren't supposed to be doing. We might be trying too hard. We might be doing too much, as the kids maybe say nowadays. You're doing too much, man. Just you shouldn't try to do all that it is you're supposed to be doing. So what is it then? What is our job description in evangelism? What is God's job description in evangelism? 
Are we maybe doing things that God has said that he's supposed to do? Because I imagine that some of you walk in here today, maybe discouraged with evangelism. You've shared your faith. You just go, I'm just not seeing any fruit. I'm not seeing results. I'm not seeing anything changing. And maybe that's made you draw back to go, well, maybe I just don't have the gift of evangelism. Maybe that's somebody else's gift, and I'm not supposed to do this. And my hope then is today, as we look at Acts 16, we'll see what it is God has told us to do, what it is that God has promised that he will do, and the way in which that then shifts, changes, and emboldens our evangelism. Let's read Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 14, and then we'll dive in. Paul has been, he just had a vision from this man from Macedonia, kind of in this area of Philippi, where he'd rather later plant a church and write his letter to the Philippians. He had this vision of this man from Macedonia who was asking Paul to come and help him. So Paul then goes to Macedonia, this area in Europe, the first time the gospel goes to Europe. And this is Paul's first encounters when he gets to Europe and the evangelization of Europe. So in verse 14, Paul, or Luke, the author of Acts, writes this. From Troas then, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we were expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And after she and her household were then baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my home. And she persuaded us. So here in this story, Paul goes to Europe. He has this encounter. He goes to Philippi. He goes down uh, to the river. um, And he goes to talk to these women that are gathered there. Now, there's no synagogue in Philippi. It's a Roman colony. There isn't that large of a Jewish population. But there is this gathering of women who have come to pray. So Paul, in his typical strategy, goes to a religious epicenter, begins to open up the scriptures and reason with them. Now, we're going to zone in on verse 14 and this exchange that he has with Lydia. Now, Lydia was a God-fearing woman, so she was religious, and she was a dealer of purple cloth. Now, this, just, this means that she was, in essence, just a fashionista. Right, she would have been on Madison Avenue. She was uh, in vogue. She was had all the latest on fleek uh, fashion advice. This was Lydia. So she was not only a fashionista; she was also wealthy. She was a dealer of purple cloths. This was a wealthy businesswoman from Asia, from the city of Thyatira, and she was listening. And so this is the encounter now. Paul, with this religious businesswoman, successful, wealthy Asian businesswoman, and there's this exchange that happens. And you hear, look at the second half of verse 14. This is where we spend most of our time on. Here's what happened as she was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Now, again, for us, I think sometimes if we share our faith, we might feel the burden on our shoulders to try to change people's hearts. We like to control. It's in our nature. We like to be able to take control of our lives, of our choices, of our consequences. And maybe we feel like it is up to us in order for someone to believe. 
how persuasive we might be, how knowledgeable we might be, how friendly we might be, that we maybe unwittingly put the burden on us to be able to change people's hearts. And friends, if you've done that, I can guarantee I know that you felt the frustration of that not working. I have a hard enough time controlling my own heart, let enough someone else's. That's not working. And we're trying to do too much. And honestly, it's probably not dissimilar from man's first attempts at trying to fly. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these videos. You can go on YouTube, type in man's early attempts at flight. And man, we were just morons at what we thought would work. And what was interesting to me is you see all these contraptions that mankind made to try to be able to fly all tried to mock and imitate what a bird does. So we saw birds, we went, okay, they're flying, let's do what they are doing. And every wing, all the wings of airplanes were flapping early on, guys were on bicycles, there were rockets on the back. Like, I don't know how we made it past that time in our lives as humanity because we did dumb stuff trying to fly. But what it was I saw that was interesting is over and over again, mankind tried to do all of the work to be able to fly. Let's flap our wings. Let's make an energy. Let's make sure that we can get off the ground and we'll do it. Just go home, type in man's early attempts at flight, and you'll see we were trying to do it all. But then people began to apply Newton's third law and Bernoulli's principle. And soon people began to figure out, actually, there are things that we need to do We need to be able to go fast. We need to be able to design an aerodynamic wing. But there are external forces at work that will create and generate the lift. That we have to do some things, but ultimately flight doesn't come from us and our effort. It comes through external forces then creating this lift as we then take flight. And so apart from trying to do all the work ourselves, finally the Wright brothers and then others after them saw there are some things that we need to do, but the ultimate generation of flight comes from an external force that creates it. And friends, I wonder when it comes to evangelism, if maybe we feel like those early attempts at flight. We feel like we've got to do all the work. When we look at Acts 16, particularly verse 14, as we'll see just scattered throughout the rest of the Bible, we'll see that there are external forces at work, that there are still things that we need to do, but there are external forces at work that generate the lift of our hearts, that open up our hearts. It is not ultimately up to us. And so looking at that sentence in verse 14, That second sentence, I see there are four things I want us to kind of walk through uh, for the rest of our time. That the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. The four things that we see, we see the actor. We see the main agent. We see the one who's doing the work, the actor. Second, we see the action. Third, we see the result. And fourth, we see the means. We see the actor, the action, the result, and the means. So first, the actor. We see right here, the actor is the Lord. It's a bit surprising, isn't it? You're in this exchange with Paul and Lydia. Wouldn't you expect the main person moving the action forward was maybe Paul, the greatest Christian missionary of all time? Paul is the one who is here making this happen, but it's not Paul. You go, okay, well, if it's not Paul, then surely it will be Lydia. It will be Lydia's response. She is the one in control of her fate, the one that's moving this thing forward, the one that's controlling and opening her heart. But what we find when we read the text is it's not Paul, it's not Lydia who are the actors in this story. It is the Lord. 
God is the one who is acting here solely. He is the one who is making it possible. There is no hope apart from him stepping in and acting. He is the one here who is generating this action. And friends, this isn't just here in verse 14. This is throughout the whole Bible. And so I won't go through all the verses, but I'll take you to a couple of um, some of the most popular passages and some foundational passages in the scriptures. So you can flip there or you can just write down the references. You can go back later. But going back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. This is a huge prophecy in the Old Testament in regards to what God will do and what the new covenant will look like. And listen to the way that God, through the prophet Ezekiel, describes what he will do. And as I read it, I want you to listen in particular to how many times you hear the phrase, I will. This is God speaking. How many times you hear God say, I will, and what it is that he will do. And listen to how many times uh, we then will do things as well. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 to 27. God says, for I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you, and I will cause you to follow my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. Now, where is God in that story? And where are we? God is the actor. He is not helping. He is doing. He is the one taking out old hearts and putting in new ones. You fast forward to the New Testament in Romans 8, what's often referred to as the Mount Everest of the Bible. There's just so many huge soaring truths in Romans chapter 8. And in verse 30, Paul writes this. He says that those whom God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, again, where are we in that sentence? God is the one doing. He predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. From beginning to end, God is the actor. He is not helping us. He is not making it possible. He is doing. The Lord is the one doing. And summed up, I think, as well as we can in Revelation chapter 7, verse 10, this beautiful image, whenever all of God's people are gathered around the throne, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You know what their song is? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The cry of his people will be, God, salvation belongs to you. You did not help. You did not make it possible. Salvation is yours. It belongs to you. You sit on the throne. You have saved us. You have brought us here. You predestined. You called. You justified. You glorified. You have done all the things that you said that you will do. You are the actor. We are the ones that have been acted upon and have been brought to this point. And so that's what we see first here in Acts 16, 14, is that the Lord is the actor. But second, we see the action. What is it that the Lord does? The action is here in the next few words. The Lord does what? Opened her heart. The action that this actor does is that God opens Lydia's heart. That Lydia's heart was closed off. Lydia's heart was shut 
And no amount of exertion or effort or persuasion could Lydia or others use to pry her heart open. It took divine effort and divine action to open her heart. That's exactly what God did. From a theological standpoint, this is called regeneration. This is when we get a new heart, or as Jesus describes, being born again. This is what it is that's described here. The Lord opens her heart. Lydia was regenerated. She was given a new heart. She was born again. And this comes first before Lydia does anything. The first thing that happens is she's given a new heart. And Jesus says this same thing in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. In verses 3 and verses 5, he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So entrance into the kingdom of God and the sight of the kingdom of God are dependent upon us first being born again. That's the action. And again, to go back to what it is that we saw who the actor was, the question to bring forward then is that as Jesus compares this process to being born again, what is our participation in being born again? Well, ask this question. What was your participation in being born? You didn't do a lot. You didn't have any say. You didn't fill out an application and say, I would like to be born here. I would like these parents. I would like to be born in this area. You didn't, you didn't get any of that. You were just born. You were here. And Jesus, on purpose, chooses this to illustrate the point that this is the action of regeneration. We are born again. It's not us in the process. The Lord is the one doing it. He then brings us to be born again. He opens our hearts. Elsewhere, Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 1, 4, and 5. He says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Paul says, okay, here's Jesus' illustration of being born again. Paul says, let me give you another kind of image. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't limping away from Jesus. We were not struggling. We were dead. And while we were dead, God came and made us alive. That's the action. He opened our hearts. We were born again. He made us alive together with Christ. So often what is described sometimes in salvation is it's this picture of us maybe drowning in the ocean. Jesus throws us a life raft. And then it's our choice whether or not we want to grab the life raft. It's up to us. But friends, over and over again, what we see in the Bible is that we are not drowning. We are dead. The image is that we are dead at the bottom of the sea and Jesus comes down to us and makes us alive again. He resurrects us through his grace. We are saved by his grace alone, not by anything that we do so that no one can boast. This is where Paul continues in Ephesians 2. But we are saved by grace through faith and that faith is a gift from God. That's the action, opening our hearts, born again, made alive. God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. You see, that has to happen because the main problem with us is not what we do. 
Our main problem is what we love. It's what our hearts are set on. This is our main issue. Our, as human beings, what we do is driven by what we love. Our hearts dictate and steer our actions. Because if you think, I want you to think of your favorite food in the entire world right now. You don't have to say it out loud. I guess you can if you want to, but you don't have to. Your favorite food in the entire world. Then I want you to think of what your most hated food in the world is. It's just disgusting. You don't even like to look at it. If you're in the same room with it, this gag reflex just begins. It's awful. Whatever that is. So those two things. Now imagine that someone takes those two things, what you love and what you hate, places them right in front of you and says, hey, I'm going to give you 100 different chances. Choose whatever you want to do. Complete free will. Go ahead. Choose what you want. In those 100 choices, what are you going to choose? 50-50, 70-30. No, 100 times out of 100, you're going to choose the thing that you love and avoid the thing that you hate. Even though you had complete free will, why? Because what you love determined your action. We're actually bound by the freedom of our will because of what we love and what we hate. But friends, it's no different in our spiritual relationship that our hearts are dead in sin. That's the way it describes where we are. John 3, Jesus says that our hearts love the darkness. And whenever the light showed up, we hated the light and avoided the light because our deeds were evil. And what's underneath both of those actions is not what it is what we do, but it's the inclinations of our hearts. We loved the darkness and we hated the light. Our problem isn't what we do. It's who we are and what we love. We don't need new actions. We don't need better morality. We need new hearts. We need different taste buds. We don't just need to convince ourselves to eat something else. We need to want to eat something else. It needs to change what it is what we desire. And friends, this is what happens in this action. As the Lord opens our hearts, we are born again. We are made alive. God then gives us different taste buds. And the things that we avoided, Jesus and following him, all of a sudden begin to become attractive. We begin to want to desire them. And the things that we used to love, we begin to hate. We're not perfect. We continue to fall, but there is this shift we can feel that there is something different. And there's this action of our hearts being opened. And this then leads to the, res the result for Lydia. To the actor, the Lord, does this action, opens her heart. What's the result of it then? Lydia gets new taste buds. Lydia gets a new heart. And what happens? She responds. All right, look then at verse 14. What happens next? The Lord opened her heart to respond. Some of your translations may say to pay attention to. Lydia was now listening. She found herself drawn to this message. It was something different. This response is saving faith. It's conversion. It's the, the point in which we repent and believe. Kind of this turning is a good way to think about it. Repentance is turning from the things of this world, and faith is then turning to Jesus. And Lydia began then to turn. She had this saving faith. I think a word that captures it well is the word trust. She began to truly trust Jesus. Now, it's important for us to define what this faith is. Faith isn't just intellectual knowledge. It's not just knowing things about God. It's also not agreeing to things about God. It's not just intellectual assent. 
But James 2, verse 19, James is confronting his readers and says that you believe that God is one, way to go. Even the demons believe that. James is saying, listen, the demons have an intellectual knowledge of who God is. In fact, they have a better knowledge of who God is. Demons are far better theologians than we are, often. They know about God. So saving faith isn't just intellectual knowledge or assent. It is also not an emotional response then to that knowledge. Right? This is one thing I've seen growing up in the church often is we think faith is if we can stir up enough emotion within people and get people to make a choice in the midst of that emotion, that's salvation. But the very end of James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and they shudder. The demons have an emotional response to the knowledge that they have of God. Um, emotionally responding to God, whether it be through music, through a message, is not in and of itself salvation. Conversion absolutely brings emotion, but it is not founded on emotion. No, true saving faith, truly responding to the gospel and trusting in Jesus is a volitional choice to treasure and trust him. It's this sense of then being able to lean fully into him. The hymn hymn writer put it this way, to wholly lean on Jesus' name. Here's a picture of what saving faith looks like. All of you are sitting down, I think right now, most of you are, but you're sitting down in a chair. When you came in, you maybe walked in and asked to see the instructions for how the chair was built, what the weight capacity was for the chair to be able to hold you up. And you may walk around and go, you know what? I believe that this chair will hold my weight because of the knowledge that I now possess of the physics and the science of this chair. But you know what? Even apart from that, I doubt any of you did that. But you all sat down. And when you put your full weight into that chair, friends, that is a far clearer expression of your trust that that chair will hold you up than any amount of information or knowledge that you might have. And following Jesus is so much more than just knowing true things about him. It's so much more than just having an emotional response to him. It is letting your full weight down into him to trust that he is who he said he is and that you will follow him as both your Savior and your Lord, sitting down saying, Jesus, I trust you. Maybe even before you have all the facts and information, saying, Jesus, I trust you. That's what saving faith looks like. Trusting now in the one that you used to reject, drawn to the one that you used to avoid. And this is this word here, this word to respond in Acts 16, 14, or to pay attention to. It was originally written in the Greek, and the same word is used to describe people who are addicted to alcohol. In 1 Timothy 3.8, Paul uses the same word uh, in the qualifications for deacon, that they shouldn't be addicted to much alcohol, to much wine, that there shouldn't be this addiction, this draw, this pull, this kind of craving towards this thing. Paul is saying that's actually what's happening now in Lydia's heart. She's now responding. There's now this drawing, this craving to this thing that she used to avoid, that she is now pulled towards this one that she used to reject. I think the best, goodness, the best explanation I've seen of what conversion looks like, this response, is in the hymn that we just sang. In that third stanza, Charles Wesley wrote, put it this way, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. 
He's saying, I was in a dungeon, I was in chains, I was fast bound by my sin and nature's night. But in the midst of that darkness, God, your eye let out a quickening ray of light into my darkness. And then I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. And in a moment, my chains fell off, my heart was free. So I rose, went forth and followed thee. Friends, that is our response. That is the result. Wesley didn't have a key in the dungeon that he couldn't find until God gave him some light. God's light shone into the darkness, broke his chains, set his heart free, and then his response was to be able then to pay attention to, to respond, to go forth, and to follow him. This was the result for Lydia to respond, and it's how it works with us as well. But what's the means that God uses? Because we may hear all of that. Here's the danger. We hear all of that and go, okay, well, if God's the one who saves, if he's then the one that opens people's hearts, that then that's what they are given new hearts and then they go and people respond to him, well, then what do I have to do? That makes me just want to sit around and not do anything if God's taking care of all of it. These are people who will wrongly interpret it and think that this is then we're called to be the frozen chosen. God has chosen us. He's working. We don't have to do anything. We'll just be still because he's going to do it all. But friends, what we see here in Acts 16 is the means in which God uses to save. And you see here at the very end what it was that brought all of this about. That the Lord, yes, opened her heart absolutely to respond, but to respond to what? Here's the means, to what Paul was saying. The means that God used to save Lydia, the means that God uses to save anyone is through his people speaking his word. His people sharing his gospel. You will not find an example in the Bible in which God saves someone apart from human means, going and speaking. In fact, this is Paul's entire argument for why it is we need to go to the ends of the earth in Romans 10. He said, listen, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call if they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach unless they are sent? So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? Paul traces it all back and says, we've got to go because if we don't go, they won't call. And this is the emphasis for missions and evangelism for Paul. And it's the same here in verse 14 as it is throughout the Bible, as it is still in our day today, that God is the one who saves. Salvation belongs to him. That is where saving faith comes from, through his action. But what we see then in Romans 10 right after that is that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ that Lydia would not have been saved had Paul not gone and preached. And for us, we feel then the clarity of what it is we are supposed to do then in this evangelism. We are to go and we are to speak. We are to say. We are to share the truth of God's word and the truth of his gospel because faith comes from hearing. Lydia's heart was open to respond to what Paul was saying. We hear the importance of words speaking and saying. There's a phrase that gets often passed around in churches a lot. It gets wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He probably didn't say it, but the phrase goes like this, that we are to preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. 
And here's what is communicated in that quote, is that we are preaching the gospel always by how we live, how loving we are to our neighbor, by serving others, by being kind, by being patient. That is preaching the gospel, and we're to do it always. And when it's necessary, we then use words. Now, listen, the the heart behind that, I can understand. Our actions are important, but they do not preach the gospel. Paul didn't show up in Philippi and open the door for Lydia, and Lydia go, oh my goodness, who is Jesus? And I want to believe in him. Paul had to speak. It is not his actions. Now, our actions do either authenticate or, um, or refute the message that we communicate. Our actions are important. So if you go to your workplace and you're not a good employee, you always turn things in late. You're the one starting the gossip around the water cooler. And then the next day you show up and begin to tell people about Jesus. Nobody's going to listen to you because your life is counter to your message. So our lives need to authenticate the message, but they do not replace the message. God does not need our good works, but our neighbors do. And that they authenticate this message that we proclaim. But friends, we have to make sure that we understand the means in which God uses to save people is not nice things. It is through the gospel message. It's through his word. We have to speak. Because what often happens with that quote, I see people use it not as a push to continue to live good lives on top of preaching. It's often used as a crutch to make people feel better about never really sharing the truth of who Jesus is. Oh, I'm preaching the gospel through my life. I don't have to say anything. I preach the gospel always. Listen, that's, that's just hogwash. Just don't believe it. Preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use a bullhorn. This is what we see in the New Testament. This is the means. Faith comes from hearing. Goodness, Paul, this was, as Paul was getting discouraged in one of his cities, he was in the city of Corinth before, before the church got started, and Corinth was a hard place to be. It was like Las Vegas on steroids. Like it just was, it was a double port city. There was a lot of sailors there. It was hard ground for the gospel to take root. So for whatever reason, Paul began to be discouraged and began to be afraid. Just a couple chapters after this in Acts 18. And God shows up to Paul in a vision and he tells Paul this. The Lord said to Paul in Acts 18 verses 9 through 11. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Paul, do not be afraid. Also just find encouragement with that. Paul, the implication, Paul was afraid. Right? The, the greatest missionary, Christian missionary that ever lived was beheaded by Rome because of going for, he was in, goodness, a million jails, shipwrecked, beaten, that in a moment he was afraid in the midst of his evangelism. That, that makes, it humanizes Paul. I think sometimes we can put him on too much of a pedestal. He was afraid. It can be hard to share our faith. Right? I understand there's fear in going to our neighbor, to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, and sharing what it is we believe. But Paul was afraid. And so God tells him, no, Paul, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Again, you hear the emphasis is on what it is we say. Paul, go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? Because I have many in this city who are my people. Well, what a phrase. God tells Paul, hey, Paul, listen, there are people here who are mine. And the only way that they will come to me is if you go and continue to speak. So go, continue. I will save them. I will open their hearts, but you've got to go. And Paul then, what that does for Paul, that doesn't make Paul then go, oh, if they're your people, I'm just not going to do anything, God. You got it. 
it emboldened Paul. It gave him boldness and confidence. So he stayed there another year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Why? Because Paul understood his job description. Paul knew that his job was to get the gospel from his lips to their ears. And he knew that God would then get it from their ears to their heart. Friends, it's massively important for us to understand our role in God's mission. Because if not, we will try to step in and try to get it from their ears to their heart. We will feel the weight of trying to change hearts. And we will either do things that are manipulative or trying to water down the message, or then we won't see fruit and we will feel the guilt and the burden of failure when it wasn't our job to begin with. Our job is to be faithful to sow God's seed, his word, around the entire earth. And he's the one then that will create the growth. We get it from our lips to his ears, their ears. He gets it from their ears to their hearts. You open the book. God will open their hearts. This is our job. This is the means. You open the book. He will open the heart. Now, why did we spend all of that time just walking through the importance of theology and doctrine about salvation and conversion and regeneration and the means for evangelism? I want to close just with these two things. I think it's massively important for these two reasons. Goodness, there's a million reasons, but we're just going to look at these two today. Because it, it should inform our prayers, and it should instill real hope. Understanding those things, who the actor is, what the action is, what the result is, and what the means is. God's job and our job. Understanding what we're called to do in evangelism and God's sovereignty and salvation should inform our prayers and it should instill real hope. What do I mean by inform our prayers? Well, let me ask it this way. If God answered every single one of your prayers this past week, how many people would enter into the kingdom of heaven? If God heard every one of your prayers and said, yes, how many people would enter the kingdom of heaven? Friends, understanding that salvation belongs to the Lord, that the Lord is the one who opens people's hearts, that he calls, predestines, justifies, glorifies, that he is powerful enough to do it. Friends, understanding that drives us to our knees. It gives us a clear reality of what we're unable to do and gives us a clear understanding of what it is God has promised to do and what he's capable of doing. And it drives us to our deeds to be able to then pray, God, would you give me opportunity? Would you give me boldness? And then would you open their heart? Those three things, it will inform our prayers and transform this church if we start to pray those things. When all these things click into place, we then begin to pray, okay, God, would you give me opportunities? Would you open doors? That whenever I have conversations with my neighbor, at my workplace, with my children, God, would you open doors for opportunities for gospel conversations? One, pray for opportunity. Second, then pray for boldness to walk through that door that God just opened. God, would you then give me the boldness to then say something? God, help me to not be afraid. Let me be able to both know what to say and then the boldness to be able to go and share it. That in those moments around kitchen tables, at mailboxes, around a water cooler, that we then would have the boldness to walk through those open doors. God, would you give us opportunity, give me the boldness to be able to share, and then when I do, 
God, would you open their hearts? God, would you do this work? Would you then open these hearts to be able to listen to, to respond, and to pay attention to what it is I am saying? If we start to pray those three things every week, individually as Christians, as this church, goodness, this year is going to be a wild ride. If that begins to become a refrain for us, saying, God, we want you to move. We want you to open hearts, and we want you to use us to do it. So give me opportunity, give me boldness, and then would you open hearts? Goodness, it was an incredible week. A couple weeks ago, we had four baptisms here. Incredible celebration. Friends, I want to see those waters continue to stir this year. And so what we see, we can't control it. There's no amount of manipulation or persuasion or or lighting or fog or anything else that can create this and give a new heart. It is God that does it. But friends, may it not be because we're not asking him to do it. And may it not be because we are not trying. But may we continue to see more and more people baptized and more and more testimonies that begin to sound as people come up and say, my neighbor began to share their faith with me. My coworker, in the middle of this uh, difficult moment I was having, shared this with me. And we begin to hear stories, not of people just bringing others to church, but of you as ministers of the gospel, going and inviting people to follow Jesus themselves. That then you would see yourself as an ambassador. And we would begin to see more and more people coming to know Jesus. Pray those three things, that this would inform our prayers. God, give us opportunity, give us boldness, and would you open their hearts? Goodness, may we be like Charles Spurgeon described, the uh, British preacher from the 1800s. He put it this way. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. May it be true for us. May this reality, back 16, 14, inform our prayers. And second, may it instill real hope. May it instill real hope. Because I know that for whatever reason, this Sometimes this conversation can stir up controversy or debate or argument. But friends, it's never meant to stir up controversy. It's meant to bring encouragement. We live in a unique culture, but what I can promise you is I know that there are people who are here today that are wanting to see someone that you love come to know Jesus. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a child who's turned away from the faith. And you maybe feel like that there's such an antagonism against Jesus that maybe it feels like there's nothing you can do to get them to follow Jesus. I hope what you hear today is that there is nothing you can do. It is not in your power. In fact, it's not your job description. But I hope the other thing that you hear is that there is nothing that is too great for God to be able to do. And salvation belongs to him. And so no matter how far someone may seem from Jesus... They are never too far from God's grace. That he is the one who acts. He is the one that moves. And I know maybe you're here watching as well. We have friends and gospel partners that are in Africa. And do you know the burden that would be on them if they're in a predominantly Muslim context and it was up to them to try to persuade people to follow Jesus? Listen, I'm not talking to them saying, hey, listen, you need more electric guitar on Sundays and that that will work because that's not going to do it. 
We cannot persuade people to change their hearts. But why would people live over there and give their life in such hard soil? Because this is true. Because the Lord is the one who opens hearts. There are many who are his over there. And so they're going to keep on speaking, being able to persevere and confidence, knowing that the Lord is the one who brings the results. It instills real hope that there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Right, that we sometimes, I think, kind of think in a scale of savability. How, how savable is this person? It seems like they're closer, they're farther away, not a chance. And we may get discouraged. But friends, what we see is that there is no scale of savability in the eyes of God. And that he is the one who moves and acts. And so there is real hope in every situation. Just look at Paul's life. Paul's a Middle Eastern terrorist who was killing Christians. And Jesus showed up and grabbed a hold of him. And how did he do it? He sent him to another city and said, go to talk to somebody there and they'll tell you about me. Yet again, through someone speaking on behalf of Jesus. And God got a hold of Paul's heart and he became the greatest Christian missionary. Friends, there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. So may it be true for us. May these things click into place for us that we see behind the scenes as God has called us to make disciples. We now see how disciples are made. The Lord then opens hearts to respond to what it is his people say. And may we become effective evangelists. And to sum all of it up, effective evangelists believe these two things. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And that faith, that salvation comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Believe those two things, and friends, we will become real and effective evangelists as we obey this commission to go and make disciples. Let's pray. God, we are just amazed at your grace to us that you would open our hearts. God, that you would speak into the darkness and bring light in the face of Jesus Christ showing us the beauty of who you are. God, would you put in our hearts a desire, a burden, a privilege to be able to go then and share this message to those who don't know you. God, help us get the truth deep into our hearts that it would create boldness, it would create confidence, it would create hope to be able to go and share, to go and speak, to go and say, knowing that salvation belongs to you. God, we are so thankful for your grace that you came and grabbed a hold of our hearts as we now continue to strive and grab a hold of you, what has taken hold of us. God, as you came and saved us and you stood beneath the wrath of God, God, saving sinners, God, and standing and dying in our place. God, help us be motivated by that reality, by that grace, and by that love. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.